This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Friday, July 14th, 2023. I'm Caleb Brown. Across the South, Bucky's, a sort of mecca for weary families on the road, has earned a loyal following, and perhaps not surprisingly, some state handouts. Cato's Mark Joffe and John Bozina of the Center for Economic Accountability talked with me about state handouts and how even a popular brand shouldn't get them. In 2022, there was a clamor in my home state of Kentucky because Bucky's was going to launch its first store in Kentucky outside of Richmond. Now, for the people who do not live in what I like to call real America, the Bucky's store, and I'm kidding, of course, Bucky's is a truck stop without the trucks. It is cleaner than any truck stop you've ever been to. They have a wide variety of beverages and, notably for this conversation, extremely clean restrooms, which for any parent of small children who alerts their children that they are not allowed to touch anything when walking into a public restroom, that is quite a feature. And yet, immediately behind Bucky's, a very popular place for people to go on the road, there are politicians who are trying to have some of that Bucky's shimmer rub off on them. Which I don't, I don't think I don't think I was stretching it to say that. So, Mark, let, let's start with you. What do you know? What have you? Because you are a Californian, you know nothing about Bucky's other than what you've read. What do you know about the degree to which politicians are giving handouts to get these? Let's be fair about it. A very nice truck stop without the trucks into their states. Well, I, I learned that the city of Ruston in Louisiana gave them very considerable tax breaks. And, you know, they're, they even created a whole dedicated economic zone just around the Buckies. So I was, as, a, as someone who's not from the South, really impressed that someone would go the really the extra mile, literally, to bring this glorified truck stop into their, into their city. Now, glorified truck stop, I will, I will stop you there. I will step in and say that is unfair because... Trucks aren't allowed at Bucky's. But John, what have you discovered about, at least in this particular instance, what the giveaway looks like? Well, the 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 thing to me that really stands out is that anyone who's been to Bucky's, and I mean, and I'm I'm a I'm a northerner, but I have I have been converted to the cult of Bucky's as someone who's taken very long drives through the your God's country in the South and and discovered them and was appropriately enthralled and in awe of them. And my son now walks around the Detroit metro area wearing a Bucky's hat. He loves it so much. But one of the things that that I was taken by was the mayor talking about the degree to which, you know, they were they were giving Bucky's all of these tax breaks, you know, no sales taxes for 20 years. And as Mark mentioned, a special district and all these things because of all of the the development that was going to happen around them. And anyone who's been to Bucky's knows that the entire idea is that it is a one-stop shop. It's the one plate you get off the freeway, you go to Bucky's, anything you could ever possibly want and many things that you didn't know that you needed are going to be there. There is an entire wall of jerky. We've talked about the bathrooms. We did not talk yet about the jerky wall. But the idea that a one-stop shop is going to create notably more development around it just seems somewhat unusual. And one of the things that the mayor didn't talk about is even just a quick Google overhead and Google maps shows that 
um, you know, there are already businesses there. This is not exactly, you know, I mean, it's, it's rural, but it's not the middle of nowhere. It's halfway between, it's halfway the five mile drive between Louisiana tech and grambling universities. I mean, there's, this is their people have been living here for a very long time and there are already businesses there. There are gas stations, there are liquor stores, there's a restaurant within a half mile and all of them are now going to be competing with Bucky's for both customers and employees. And one of the, one thing that, that John, that you've pointed out to me before we started recording was the degree to which the, the difficulty that any business would have in trying to develop any particular plot of land in that area. Yeah, I took a look as I've started doing a lot of these days when I look at economic development programs and, and deals, especially in places where the politicians are saying, oh, we have to do this in order to, to drive development, that the mayor was very clear that this is what's required these days. And so I went and looked at the zoning code and the planning systems in Ruston, which is, I mean, it's, it's a, about a 22,000 person city. It's about 21 square miles. It has in its zoning code, its zoning code is 262 pages long, including appendices. And there are 26 different zoning classifications in this city. I, I always like to note that the entire nation of Japan gets by with just 13 zoning classifications. And it's a sign of just, you know, how much American cities have gotten to the point where everything is micromanaged from above. Everything has to conform to the plan. Everything has to be an allowable use with specific setbacks and characteristics and all these things. And that's really an issue that, that draw, as you pointed out, it, it makes it much harder for folks to build things places. It makes it much more daunting task to build something unless you are a project like a Bucky's or something like that, that has the ear of the, the folks in charge and can get all the variances they need. At the end of the day, it's, it's a fairly simple thing to say. If you want people to build things in your city, make it much easier to build things in your city. And that will do a lot better for you than, you know, abating some sales taxes for, for clean bathrooms and jerky walls. Well, I, I, it seemed to me when, when I looked at this, that for a small city like Ruston that wants an amenity like this, they're really looking at being at war with all of their neighboring cities. So, you know, what does somebody do to get, to get ahead? And it reminded me very much of the competition that Amazon did for their second headquarters. They got lots of cities to come up with really aggressive proposals and then ultimately didn't use any of them. But it seems like a, a big company is in a position to pit different cities against one another to get these tax breaks. One other thing I want to note is that Tennessee recently got its second Bucky's, and it it sort of is emblematic of the kinds of economic development rah-rah sessions that a lot of politicians do around this. This was the governor Bill Lee was there, the mayor of the town where this Bucky's was going to be located, said this is going to drive jobs and economic development. And I, I sort of I guess I want to dig down a little bit. What evidence is there that handouts for any particular kind of business actually does drive economic development? There really isn't any. And the reason for that is, is that businesses make decisions for a whole lot of different reasons. And, you know, state or local taxes or even state and local subsidies are a very small 
portion of that decision. They, they do play a role. It's not that they don't matter at all, but that they actually matter very little. And one of the ways we know this isn't just even academic research. It's, it's from things like the site selection industry's own surveys. Area Development Magazine for 37 years has been surveying corporate site selectors on what factors go into their site selection decisions at any given time. And they change over time as issues, uh, as issues rise and fall. In the most recent survey this earlier this year, state and local tax breaks came in 13th in importance behind a whole lot of other factors. Do you have the workforce? Is the land there? How much does the land cost? What are your construction prices? Where are your competitors? What kind of resources do you have? What's the infrastructure like? Energy costs, regulatory state, all of these sorts of factors that businesses have to care about. So when you look at something like a Bucky's, it might be a little bit different than something like a, a you know EV battery plant or a chip factory or something like that. But, you know, they're going to put this facility, they're going to look at what the competition looks like on the interstate. They're going to look at where they can get the land within the kind of, you know, radius of the place they want. They're going to look at how much the land is going to cost them and whether there's workers there and all those sorts of things. So, yes, you know, like maybe Rustin is, is competing with, you know, the cities within like a couple miles either way on the interstate on this. But it's probably a fairly limited set of places that this sort of thing can go. And, you know, the benefits to the city is like, okay, your, 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 you know, your residents can live there. Well, it's halfway between Ruston and Grambling. The people from Grambling can go work there just as easily and they're not out of pocket from the city. They're not, you know, incurring the municipal costs to have this there. They're not incurring the infrastructure costs, the policing, all of those sorts of things. You know, it's what I say often is that these kinds of deals, when you look at sort of the small town level, especially it's, it's the equivalent of, of like having a, a swimming pool or a boat or something like that. You don't want it. You want your neighbor or your friend to have it. So the best place to be is right next door to the city that subsidized something like a Bucky's or a distribution center or something like that, because you get the benefits of having your people work there, but you don't have to pay the price of paying the cost for it. Again, and maybe both of you can speak to this, there are political benefits to be had here. There's a reason that the governor of Tennessee showed up to a press conference for the opening of a very nice truck stop minus trucks. And that is an almost impossible thing to combat. Yeah, Caleb, you're absolutely right. I, I've said this a lot of times and I think I've said it to you before here on this podcast that at the end of the day, most of these economic development deals don't exist really to create jobs. Rather, they exist to make voters believe that politicians are responsible for creating jobs, that there's you know, there's very little economic evidence that these work or that there's very little evidence that these create economic benefits. There's actually a large and growing amount of research looking at real world results that shows that there's a measurable political benefit to be had in these. There's a reason that states where governors are running for re-election are twice as likely as those where they're not to have a sudden large jump in deals, that companies that make political donations are four times more likely to get subsidies than those that don't, and on and on and on, things like that. The you know, This is a visible way for a politician, be it a mayor, a governor, to sort of stand there at the groundbreaking or ribbon-cutting ceremony and take credit for doing the thing which you know voters and local residents want them to do, which is to make things better. It's a lot easier to do that and stand there with your silver shovel and your hard hat or your big scissors than it is to say, you know, look at how much, you know, incremental growth we've had over the past five years because we simplified our zoning or planning code or because we reduced the permitting process from, you know, 15 days to three or because we turned around, you know, inspections faster or something like that. 
those might have more meaningful benefits in the long run, but they're much harder to take political benefits from. And it also shows a little bit of respect for the people who have not yet decided to be a part of your area, right? That is to say, you're, you're, you're saying we've made things so much easier. That's something you could actually sell if, if your data is correct about the rank ordering of matters of importance to local businesses. You can't predict which businesses are going to be most swayed by changes to various regulations that you've got on the books. Yeah, I mean, it really is. It, it, it's, you know, I sometimes point out that the economic development model is is what I've called sort of sidewalk level socialism. I mean, it is, you know, the word socialism gets abused all the time these days, but a government taking a direct financial stake in, you know, selected means of production is pretty close to what I learned in the poli sci 101 back in the early 90s. And that's really what this is. This is economic central planning with, you know, the financial resources of the state involved. And the argument sort of that, that you often hear from governors or mayors, well, we have to do this. We're at war with the neighboring city. We're at war with the neighboring states that we have to do this or we will lose is implicitly accepting the entire idea that a planned economy will always beat a free market. Is it, It's accepting the idea that if we don't have government trying to run anything from Ruston, Louisiana, up to the state of Louisiana, to the United States, that we will get beat by a nation that has a better central industrial policy, by a state that has better central economic planning, that a city that has more centralized you know, zoning planning and economic development. And you know, we sort of spent the last century around the world proving that that's not true. That's not really how things work. And that places that are more free and open, places that that sort of meet Adam Smith's prescription of, you know, peace, easy taxes, and a tolerable administration of justice will do better than those that try to run everything from one person's office. So many of these kinds of giveaways, be, be they through tax abatements or cash payments in return for whatever they prom- these companies promise to return, and I will, again, reiterate that Bucky's is pretty cool. I think it's great, and I will always stop at one if I see one on the road. But very little attention seems to be paid to what happens you know, after these, you know, a decade, two decades of tax abatements conclude. So, Mark, what does it look like when a company gets significant benefits from the state, special benefits from the state, at the end of it? Well, I've been following a case in Syracuse, New York, where a large shopping mall called Destiny USA has gotten an enormous amount of tax benefits, both at the state level and the local level. One of the things they, they've gotten is something called a pilot bond deal. So that's a pilot stands for payment in lieu of taxes. So instead of paying property taxes, the, uh, the company, in this case, the shopping mall, issues bonds to further expand the shopping mall so that they theoretically bring in you know, more amenities, you know, more stores, more shoppers, and so forth. So the big pitch with Destiny USA is, well, Syracuse is a declining industrial area. We need to do something new to you know, bring people in. So let's build the sixth largest shopping mall in the United States. And because it's sort of close to the Canadian border, but not really that close, maybe people will come down from Canada to, to save money. And so this never really worked that great, but then 
COVID hit and the patronage at the mall really, you know, fell off the uh, the deep end. And so at this point, the the mall is virtually on the on the edge of defaulting on these pilot bonds that were issued several years ago. So it may be that not only does the city and the county lose tens of millions of dollars of property taxes that they would have ordinarily have collected if they had not provided this abatement, but even the investors who invested in the bonds are not going to see their money back either. And ultimately, Syracuse, I think, is going to be really in a world of hurt because not only is this mall losing patronage from just you know general economic factors, they're also demolishing the interstate that goes near this mall. So it's going to be harder to access it once that happens. John Mozina runs the Center for Economic Accountability. Mark Joffe is a federalism and state policy analyst at the Cato Institute. Subscribe to and rate the Cato Daily Podcast and follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast.